Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Hot Takes with your legendary crew, including me, Reese Guida, the host person, and... Oh. I am Jason, the CTO. And... I I, uh, run global sales engineering. And And, I'm Nelson, I'm the founding engineer. That was one of our smoother ones, guys. Well done. You're like, well, it wasn't. It was, it was still as terrible as usual. So we are here on this lovely Friday afternoon to discuss a hot take that, ooh, it's a hill we would all die on, I think. Right, guys? Uh, identity should be self-sovereign. Now, that sounds very regal, and you know it might be an unfamiliar bit of terminology. So does anyone want to enlighten the listeners on what that means exactly and why they should care? Nelson, this is you. Who says that you are who you say you are? Is it your job that gave you that credential, that title, that access? Or is it a thing that you hold yourself because you created a credential and you can assert certain things about yourself and you can also allow others to assert things about yourself that you hold? And then you show those things. That It's a very complicated matter, as you can tell. Yeah. So what would that look like practically? <laughs> You're saying it goes beyond just logging into my Salesforce account? Man, uh, it goes a little beyond, yeah. Um, so if you have a wallet and you have some claims, no. <laughs> I think I already lost Jason. <laughs> I just don't have a wallet. <laughs> uh yeah so the, the the model is different i think that that's what it comes down to um rather than um all the things that are known about your identity being locked up in a database somewhere in in your work environment or in uh in a customer database for the shop you go and do things with um you hold these claims that either you self-assert because they're things that you say to be true about yourself, or you hold these claims that uh, others gave you, and you can prove or you can show that uh, those claims are true because there's cryptographic math assigned to it. Is that a good definition? I think I'm just a simpleton who's trying to look for freedom from uh, (laughs) my big tech overlords who insist that they uh, can uh, manage my IDs and... uh, love to publish how many billions of identities they've uh, locked up into their uh, fortresses. Take that, overlords. It's okay. We already control him through uh, 5G. (laughs) (laughs) So it's kind of a way, I think what you're saying, Nelson, is you have a wallet for everything, like all of your your identities, whether it's for work, um, your civic life, and they can be managed digitally by you. So that's putting the power into the hands of, you know, whatever you are in the moment, whether it's an employee, a customer, a citizen. Yeah. Yeah. There's a bunch of different implementations of that. Um, But at at the end, they'll kind of come down to the same thing. Um, There's a list of attributes and you choose which to show to whatever you trying to log into, you say, I want them to see my date of birth and the fact that I have a driver's license and here's the number of the driver's license. So if you were to rephrase it in terms of like the, the value or the utility 
uh, to the end user versus the service provider? Would it be essentially control of information disclosure, disclosure or like more privacy control to the end user, or is it something else? And what is it to the service provider? Yeah, yeah good question. Um, so I, I tend to think about it as uh, if you you collect all these attributes through your online life because you chopped at Nordstrom five years ago and they give you a loyalty card. Um, but that, that information lives at Nordstrom. How um, did you know that, Nelson? <laughs> <laughs> well, because they told you, right? They, they said, hey, here's an email. Here's the, the, the loyalty points card number, whatever. Um, I, I looked Tustin's info up from a data broker last night. So that's how he <laughs> Yeah, I thought you guys were really on a data broker going, hey, you know, we were inspired by uh, John Oliver and we're just buying each other's uh, data secretly. Well, I, I, I thought we weren't supposed to talk about the uh, the arrest for check forgeries. That's yeah, uh, my favorite cr- crime, uh, check kiting. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I, I've always had a hard time with... Um, uh, self-sovereign identity because it, it 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 starts to in my mind feel more like or it, it comes across in my mind like uh, web3 and crypto in terms of like it's fascinating and interesting from a technical perspective i just don't understand why we do what we would use it for in a way that's useful or simple so so i'm still trying to wrap my head around this if i if i rephrase what i heard um Self-sovereign identity uh, provides a way for an end user to control the information disclosure of themselves. Is that, I still don't understand what's the value to the service provider. Because the service provider, they like having that information. Why would they give it up? Yeah, but in the, in the traditional model, the kind of the three actors, the, the issuer of the claim, the holder of the claim, and the yeah. verifier of the, of, the, of the claim. Let's make the um, issuer concrete. So we've got, what did, what did we say, Coles? Hasnan and who's the issuer? Uh, the issuer is Coles in that example. <laughs> so issuer is in, in the traditional model, the issuer and the verifier are the same person or the same okay. entity. Okay. So in the new model, they're different? It could be different, right? So uh, with a, a Coles card that has your loyalty number, um, that's enough information for somebody who is not Coles to trust that that's a valid claim and use that to benefit you in some way. So say you have you have a a calls comes together with the, the neighborhood ice cream shop and mm-hmm. because you're a member that you're gonna get a discount. In that model, the ice cream shop doesn't have to talk to calls. They know because there's a cryptographic proof that you are a member of the loyalty program with calls. Why what's in it for calls? Ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> I think Huston's getting the ice cream, yeah. but what's in it for Coles for Huston to get ice cream on his Coles card without Coles knowing? Um, it's, they don't have to run the program, right? Say, say they had a vested interest in, in creating some loyalty with that ice cream shop. They don't have to run the program. All they have to do is distribute the claims, and there's no server that they need to set up for the ice cream shop to go verify those claims. Okay, so there's an infrastructure cost reduction aspect to it. That's some of it. Yep. But so the, the, the part, the part that I've had trouble with though, and on the e-commerce retail side is these companies value, um, the data of customer purchases above all else, right? Because what you bought in the past tells us what you might buy in the future. Um, 
So does this model necessitate that goes away or do we look at it in a different way? Uh, give me an example. Um, so in the old model, right? Um, if I'm issuing a loyalty card and I have some sort of cross cross benefit with another, with another company in general, I'm going to get access to the data of what you're buying, uh, at that other place. Right. And that's going to happen at, at the point of re redemption or transaction or whatever, whatever they're calling it. My, my, my data scientists, my an, uh, analytics folks are going to be basically building models, uh, both specific on Huston the individual, right. To figure out like how his preferences in uh, clothes have changed over time to, you know, make sure that we pop him the right ad later, but also probably more, um, there's probably some group analytics at play as well, right? Just to understand like demographic change so that they can plan, right? For their future. So do we lose that data or, or do we get it, but we get it in a different way? Typical big brother thinking there, Jason, you know, <laughs> reality is, is that people today are not opting into this like utopian vision that you're describing. They're essentially having their uh, privacy stripped from them using a uh, fine print EULA that no one's ever read. And what this model essentially enforces is that people need to offer more informed consent and you need to ask for permission before you compromise someone's privacy for the purposes of extracting value from their data. So I think it, 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 it's a step towards making the end party or the user uh, a stakeholder in a marketplace that already monetizes them. So like, you know, you could potentially see yourself you know, giving permission for, you know, some consideration that's equivalent to like what, you know, a person might pay for a targeted display ad. So I think it, the idea is yes, like superficially that the current retail model is the current retail model, but we make a lot of assumptions when we insist that we know that switching the identity from the central provider to the end user will suddenly like disrupt and destroy the system. I'm not yeah. saying it will destroy and disrupt. I just, it's not obvious to me what, what's the reason the, the, the retailer is going to adopt the technology, right? I've heard a reason why the end user might want it, but not necessarily why the retailer would want it. And maybe retail is the wrong example. Maybe there's another, another example that's better. I think global regulators are getting wise to the fact that uh, the big tech giants are spending a lot of energy and effort in uh, getting their lock-in earlier, and they're showing off how many users they have in their little walled gardens. And the users that they've monetized to the tune of tens of billions of dollars and when global regulators look at solutions to free their citizens, like a, like a benevolent, like, you know, free, free their challenge. citizens. I'll keep going. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, this is like the reality, right? Is music like, in it's... the background. But you need to kind of like look at the regulatory trend, right? Like uh, 
a lot of people are recoiling at the idea that uh, privacy is passe and that the new reality is a fully transparent, you know, so, everyone knows everything about everyone thing. And let's to get back to something reasonable. You have to like think about in a digital world, how do you reproduce like sort of the constructs of privacy that we had prior to this ubiquitous digital world? And so, I think so. Let's see the argument. Let's see the argument that will be compelled to adopt a different privacy framework. Why is self sovereign? the the way to do that versus just data controls again and the person who has to implement all of this right the service provider or the retailer or pick a different example right they're the ones that are going to have to spend money and time on the implementation right there's a there's probably would you agree you you probably agree there's more than one way uh, of fulfilling some whatever future privacy regular data privacy regulation would be why is this the choice or is it simpler but is it? I think, I think it also is an opportunity to uh, give people training wheels on their journey to understanding public key cryptography. Oh, okay. Uh, There's. But, but, <laughs> the reality is, if we're looking at sort of the future, there's a need to. Not a lot of the world is getting savvy to how to use browser extensions to mint and secure public and private keys for their own purposes. But some of the the world is becoming savvy to it. And you don't want to create a digital crypto divide. You don't want to have a scenario where uh, the people who understand some of these cryptographic technologies, without necessarily understanding like like deep internals, if the people who are able to effectively be power users of these technologies are only like the weird folks who have been like super involved in cryptocurrencies up to this point, it would be a failing, I think. Like, I think there are a lot of people who aren't involved in cryptocurrency exchanges and transactions that could still benefit from like the broader value of, um, digital privacy and self-sovereign identity is a good way to introduce people to the idea of uh, a private key that you need to protect and that needs to be maintained with good hygiene and how it interoperates with a public key. Like at a very basic level, I think 90% of the population still doesn't under or, or more doesn't really understand anything about the idea that you can have this, perfectly paired public and private key and it creates certain like you know privacy characteristics that are um ideal and crackable you just said something interesting that has um its roots in a a real world issue and i want to make sure i'm understanding it correctly you said uh when people have self-sovereign identities um they would need to understand the importance of protecting that private key well, guess what? I've lost my wallet before. Now there's an air tag inside it. So on the one hand, it sounds like self-sovereign identity is empowering people to have more privacy and control how they're sharing data about themselves and what they like to transact on. Um, but how much responsibility is it to manage that key and make sure that it's not being exploited? Um, because I know on our end in the the security space, 
for what we do, it's uh, very easy. But what about this application? I mean, fundamentally, there's no difference. Yeah. yeah. It, it's just, it just it's comes just... down to the wallet and um, how that wallet protects the, the credential and the key. Um, and there's models, like there's, there's all different storage models for those keys themselves, um, hardware wallets, um, or software base or paper where you print it. There's little metal things that you stamp and you have your key recovery mechanism built into a, a little metal plate. It's uh, pretty proof is how that's marketed. Yeah. Well, Nelson, you have a, a, a chip in the palm of your hand that you use to, you know, unlock certain things like the door to the office. Could your self-sovereign identity um, inside of the wallet be in your hand? Like what is... So you're <laughs> outing me a little bit, but yeah, I, I put my private crypto wallet keys. <laughs> but yeah, the, the storage of those keys, I think it becomes kind of the, the the fundamental problem if you're placing this trust on being able to present claims about yourself and that that has access, that gives you access to your online life in so many ways you you better keep those keys close to your body no pun intended <laughs> take it from Nelson the guy with keys in his hand <laughs> I, I think it's really early days and right now like uh, I'm constantly amazed like uh, I'll go to um, a dinner party or uh, meet with uh, my wife's friends and they'll have the craziest stories about their uh, crypto phishing attacks where they were recommended to switch to cold storage of their wallets and they're regaling me with information about their USB ledger hardware wallet and how it like truly protects them. And I have to like sort of burst their bubble and ask them like, you know, so what kind of backup technique did you use? Like you do realize that now you're responsible for this and it'll disappear yeah. if you don't have like an adequate like uh, approach to that. And uh, you do realize that if you when you go from cold wallet state to warm or hot wallet and connect it to something opportunistic actors are aware that there's a limited surface of these uh usb wallets and you can be you know subjected to all sorts of uh targeted attacks that's like a real like sort of bubble burst like oh crap like and, uh, but my financial advisor and all of my friends have been doing this and like, it causes me to marvel, right? Like having been in cybersecurity, but like, you know, having been busy with, uh, with young kids, I haven't had the chance to become like, you know, uh, insufferably, uh, entrenched in talking about cryptocurrencies and, uh, wallet <laughs> states all the time. Yes. <laughs> but, but hearing like ordinary people do that, it's like kind of wild. And yeah. so I'm going to translate, uh, Huston saying he's not a crypto bro, but he know, but he, but he knows a couple. You know, listen guys, we, we might all be crypto bros in, in 15 years. We're definitely on the threshold of something interesting. Uh, is it going to be a decentralized utopia or a decentralized hell? Let's, you know, stick around and find out. 
Thanks for listening to this week's episode, everybody. And we'll talk about something just as enlightening next time you hear from us. Thanks for tuning in. Like and subscribe, etc. Ta-ta. Woo! Thank you.